Hello and welcome to Cast the Pod Here Witcher. I'm your co-host Dolph. I'm your co-host Aaron. I'm co-host Max. And today we're discussing Season 1, Episode 2 of the Netflix series, Four Marks. Yeah, and uh, we were just wondering if we could uh, start today off with um, a little bit of a, a media overview for some of the more interesting things that have been going around uh, regarding the Witcher series and in, in entertainment media and such. Specifically, we discussed uh, we discussed discussing an io9 interview with Andrzej Sapkowski, who wrote the books. Uh, so, Erin, would you like to start us off with that? Because I think you had thoughts on it. Oh, yeah. So, um, this is probably the best author interview I have ever read in my life. Um, basically, um, the headline of this uh, interview is just a refreshingly honest talk with The Witcher's creator. And it is very refreshing and very honest. Basically, the interviewer just set out asking the like basic, basic questions that you always do with author interviews. Like, oh, how do you feel about you know, the adaptation to the games, how do you feel about the adaptation to the show? Um, and Sapkowski just has these incredible answers. I think my favorite part of um, the interview is when the interviewer asks him, what was your reaction to learning that the books were getting a 500,000 copy reprint after the release of the Netflix show? And Sapkowski responds with, how do you expect I answer this question that I despaired, shed tears, considered suicide? No, sir, my feelings are rather obvious and not excessively complex. And like, if you think that's great, the whole interview goes this way. So um, I would highly recommend that you just uh, Google io9 Sapkowski interview and read the whole thing because it's incredible. He just comes across as an incredibly pragmatic sort of reasonable guy who is very acutely aware of, he, he knows that his, his books are good and that they're successful and he's happy with them. Um, and it's obviously quite sanguine at all the adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> One of the moments in that interview where I was like, of course you're into that, like it was where he says he plays bridge and poker. Like, and I was, yeah, I'm not shocked. You seem exactly like the kind of guy who would. Um, yeah, the other part um, I like is when they sort of like, ask how he feels about um, changes made in both the sort of the games and the the show. And he just says, you know, I believe in the freedom of the artist and his artistic, and fresh, ex- artistic expression. I don't interfere. It's just, it's just so refreshing to just have someone who's just like so straight up about. Yeah. Or like where he, where he goes, um, where he's asked about what translated best to screen or like what didn't translate as well to screen in the show adaptation. He goes, my name appears in the credits. I cannot praise the show. <laughs> It would be, yeah. and yeah, like, I would have to be an idiot to, you know, um, not to slag off the show. My name appears in the credits. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, it's um, it's brilliant. Um, the other things that have been in the media about The Witcher lately is um, that it's been confirmed what Nightmare of the Wolf is going to be focused on. So, for anyone who doesn't know, Nightmare of the Wolf is the new animated film that is being produced by Netflix and it is going to be a brand new story that hasn't been part of any other sort of published media and it's going to focus on a young Vesemir. So uh, for people who are watching the show only, Vesemir uh, gets a brief mention. He's sort of uh, Geralt's mentor um, as a witcher. That's fantastic. That's that's actually something like like, I'm very excited about this. I'm very, very, very excited. Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, because Vesemir is one of my 
uh, favorite characters in the books, and I feel like he doesn't get enough like screen time, and I'm I'm very happy with this. Yeah, uh, me too. I'm thrilled, and I'm just looking forward to there being some new media to consume as I get closer and closer to finishing the books. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, right. Moving on to the episode then. Ah, yes. So at the end of episode one, we've 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 seen Geralt coming face to face with essentially an alternate universe him, and um, you know it becoming obvious. You know, Renfrey has this premonition, or she's very prophesizing towards him, saying she is your destiny, the woman in the forests, and Geralt being hounded out of uh, Blaviken. And so the next episode starts, and it's somewhere we don't know where. It's a very amorous couple, and this gentleman presents this little <laughs> gift. <laughs> I love this scene to, uh, because it's got so paramour. much of the, um, just that sort of subtle and sort of wry humour of this ser- the series, when um, the, the sort of nameless boy hands the nameless girl the flower, and she <laughs> says, uh, it's not a rose, daisies are cheap, and he says, uh, roses are cliché. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very pragmatic male um, response, (laughs) stereotypically so. Um, Yeah, and then we're introduced to the poor crooked girl with her eyes in the stable. Raise your arms if you're related to the other for being bullied. I certainly do. Yeah. (laughs) F in the chat. For sure. Every every normal normal child in the universe. <laughs> Everyone who develops a personality. In the <laughs> Everyone who goes on to host a fantasy series <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I think you're right Quite there. So. I'm, not, I'm not convinced that like when my classmate gave people a develops that wasn't a form of bullying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they so they beat up this they beat up this poor poor lass, and then suddenly she ports away and finds this magic man with magic looking eyes in this speculating I actually really like the Witcherverse term for teleporting, which is like like such a nice verb, portaled portaled it's it's really cool, it's just satisfying like teleport always (laughs) sounds like you're, it just sounds wrong for some reason, I can't say why it sounds like you're exactly, dropping something yeah, down the like stairs. It's that sort of thing. Like, uh, but uh, portaling always sounds so soft, so like you know, lovely. Mm-hmm. So mm. she, yeah, she arrives in this sort of spooky cavern with um, this magical man, and he, um... yeah, he he explains that uh, that she portaled there. That she portaled there with uh, your magic. Yes. It's like my what? Says you're a virgin. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, fair enough response, yeah, really. Comment on someone being a virgin. I think it's only fair to to, to be first time you to, to be slapped. <laughs> makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I love that even in this like terrifying situation, she's just like defiant and yeah. You you really establish that she you know like although she's clearly someone who doesn't have the best life is also at the same time a very strong personality who will stand up for herself mm-hmm. so mm. that's that's i think quite significant especially knowing what happens forward yeah so they talk for a little bit and then the the men um immediately 
sort of snap sort of snaps to and realizes that if she has portaled in there that means that she will be tracked by someone he just refers to as her but is clearly afraid of and he uses a different kind of magic to send her back and before he sends her back he tells her his name is Istrid uh, but doesn't get her name and his attempt to send her back without being tracked doesn't work she's home for a little while and we see some of her life she lives on a pig farm and she's really struggling to sort of keep up with the the farm tasks and uh, the man we find out is her father is quite cruel to her and then yeah <laughs> Her, yeah. her dad is established immediately as pretty horrible. Yeah. Um, and then the woman who we uh, mm. would assume is the one that Istrid was referring to shows up. And In a regal verdant green skirts and cloak and a horse-drawn carriage. Looking extremely wealthy and then chooses to humiliate Yennefer by first asking the price of a pig and then offering less than half of that to buy Yennefer, even though she's clearly very, very wealthy and this means nothing to her. More specifically, um, it's uh, her father who actually says that Yennefer's price is half that of... Well, what happens is, yeah, she asks how much the price of a pig is, and he says 10 marks, and then asks how much for this beast, and he says 6 marks, and then she chooses to yeah, haggle down, down to 4. So it's like both of them conspiring to humiliate her as much as possible. Yes, you're right. I remember now, yeah. And then she says, you can't just sell yeah, me. And we learn that that isn't her father, but is actually her stepfather, because her, her mother comes out and says, you know, are you mad? This woman's a witch. You know what she'll do. She's our daughter. You can't sell her. And he says, she's no daughter of mine. Yeah. yeah. Well, later in the, the episode, that, that it's confirmed that that's because mm-hmm. he's her stepfather. Like, yeah. at, that, at that time, it isn't totally clear. Like, my first viewing... Um, because I was sort of going off the back of the book canon as well a little bit. I was just sort of assuming that he's just being a dickhead. Mm. But uh, yeah, yeah. Like it turns, like we find out in the later on that that's because he's only her yeah. stepfather. Um... I think about this scene that I actually quite like. Mm-hmm. Um, and this will feel like a really tiny thing. Um, but I really like Wengerberg. Like the surroundings of Yennefer's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, like because like although it's mostly just relatively cheap cgi it's just a mm-hmm. very nice design for a cgi it like reminds me of like basically you know exactly how an eastern european like medieval city would have looked like and it's just oh. a really nice throwback to like like the architecture is very like traditional and slavic and i kind of like it you know it's mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, I really like the village as well. Um, I'll note, um, in line with what we were saying last week, it is foggy again. <laughs> Even though it's actually quite sunny, it's also foggy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that helps with the CGI budget, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, we get to see that she's um, quite sort of tough and stubborn as well, because she, you know, this clearly rich and powerful woman is telling her, okay, like, I've bought you come with me and she she refuses she tries to refuse to go um and then time skip to where <laughs> <laughs> yes we time skip so we time skip and she is um at Eratusa. did do we know that it's Eratusa yet um it's not explicitly stated but um we find out later in the episode yeah. so so she just sort of immediately arrives at Eratusa and is locked in a very sort of dark stone room and uh in an act of defiance after sort of saying, you know, four marks. I mean, bought for four marks has clearly wounded her. 
Um, she smashes the mirror and um, tries to slit her wrists. Yeah, yeah, like she... properly dark <laughs> introduction. Yeah, yeah. She, the her first establishing act as a character is, is... her really ugly greeting and yes, smashing a mirror. I noticed and... that. I really liked that. That she was like really messy, snotty, ugly, crying. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. <laughs> Emotive. Um, I really like the way that they shot this as well because I mean there's always a temptation to get like super graphic and really draw this sort of thing out which can be really sort of harmful for the viewer um, and mm. they didn't well, choose literally to do triggering. that. They, yeah. Yeah, they chose to leave it at sort of like the implication which yeah. I really appreciate. Yeah. It's handled um, well as well as you can handle that kind of thing in dramatization. I, mm-hmm. I think it also like um, emphasizes for the first time, that she doesn't really like how she looks, um, because... She smashes the mirror. She smashes the mirror after she's looked at it, you know? Mm -hmm. That's true, because if she's from a poor medieval village, she might not even have, you know, seen a proper mirror. I mean, to be fair, she's she's, she's from, like, the capital of Edirne, but I I get the impression that was, like, you know, a suburb. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, but also, like, um, it's it's quite funny because like although it looks like a village that like if it, it especially like like the thing about it is that like you can tell uh the, the only the only way you can tell it's the cities if you if you look at the skyline in the background mm-hmm. which is also just exactly how most medieval cities function which is to say like uh if you lived on the outskirts it wasn't especially different from living in a village yeah no you'd have your walled city that had like your your market and traders and and merchants and things and then yeah you'd have the the ring of farms around the the outside and that's kind of clearly where she's from is that ring of exactly. farms so yeah. that's where this scene ends and the next scene that we get is um we go to Siri who is lost in the forest and it's winter and it's foggy again um and there are men in Nilfgaardian uniform yeah. looking for her we get to see that she's quite clever and resourceful because she sort of like leans down and coats her hair in mud yeah, so, so, she's not so, so like that readily her visible. ashen hair one of her most notable features is covered up mm-hmm. um and then after she does that she is saved from eating poison berries by a mysterious boy her age who doesn't speak <laughs> but gives her a rat, so there's. He that. does give her a rat, yeah. So he saves her from poison berries and tasty, gets tasty her some rat. some rat to eat. She initially refuses, but she says she's been wandering the woods for three days and hasn't spoken to anyone mm. or eaten anything. <laughs> and he continues not speaking to her. Yeah, and she's clearly grateful. She makes the rather impractical gift of one of her gloves to the boy. So now they both yeah, that's a cute have scene. one cold hand. Yeah, I always like whenever <laughs> I watch that scene, I go like, like Siri, this is really kind of all, but like not very wise. To be fair, you can kind of share it because if you have the you know the warm hand and the glove holding the cold hand, then it's it is, it is something. It's not, I guess it's something, and she has to show her gratitude somehow. Yeah. Uh, but then she sees Centrin flags and runs straight for the Centrin refugee camp and loses the yeah. boy in the process. So obviously he's got some reason to be yeah. <laughs> scared so of Centrin's. Yeah, the, the boy, the boy yeah. stays behind. He doesn't like seek yeah. out. The... Yeah, so we get the impression yeah. that there's a reason that he would not want to be seen by Centra, Centrin. The highlight of the series. Uh. <laughs> Our beautiful boy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, yes. Oh. We're finally, we're finally here. We're finally here. <laughs> so no, it's not, it's not that soon. That's later on. <laughs> it's not that scene yet. It's, it's the um, 
It's the one about all the monsters that are uh, real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know, I know that he's thinking about uh, a pike and a spike that lurks <laughs> in their drawers. Yes, or the flying the, uh, drake that getting kills an you abortion with and stuff. He's not the best lyricist <laughs> no. in the world. <laughs> oh gosh, that line is so amazing. The you need the old man, the hag to brew you a, por- a potion so that your lady can get an abortion. Like the crowd yells, <laughs> oh, yeah. "Abort yourself!" He's uh, he likes his <laughs> rhyming pairs. He's very dedicated to finding rhyming pairs, no matter how forced they may be. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean this. The scene is just like so iconic this is everything that this character is like right gets, away yeah, getting pelted um, with bread from the crowd but... and stuffing it into his pockets <laughs> yeah stuffs it into his pockets because he's clearly not doing very well as a bard <laughs> and then he spots uh, his he spots his man um brooding man in the corner <laughs> brooding <laughs> yeah flirt mode activated <laughs> comes up with the wonderful line don't want to keep a man with bread in his pants waiting (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah that's line oh that's just an incredible line yeah like tell me about my singing you don't want to keep a man with bread in his pants waiting come on some of you three words or less (laughs) like honestly the first time I watched this uh, I, I remember just like knowing immediately my god, they've cast them perfectly. So it sort of pans over, like, we get the sort of camera sort of pans over to Geralt, and we can see that he's clearly been having a very bad time since Blaviken. Um, his armor is a mess, and it's missing most, of, missing most of its silver studs. He's even more sort of taciturn than usual. Um, <laughs> not been having a good time. Yeah, he's uh, brooding is the right word. Yes. Um, I think, like, they've done a really good job visually of representing just, like, he's either not been taking care of himself or not been working much. Yeah, because he tips up his coin purse and a single coin falls out and he's got a single cup of whatever on his table. Yeah, and yeah, he's clearly had no money to maintain his armour. <laughs> Even his hair is looking pretty bad and, like, dry yeah. and, like, not good this episode. Yeah, he just looks like he's been a real mess for years and years at this point. That's true, because we don't really know how much time has passed between this and Renfrey. Yeah, well, Netflix put their uh, timeline up on the website now, mm. um, so we know that it's been, well, we know it's been quite a while, because Blaviken happened when Calanthe was very young, and Yaskir's mortal, so... <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> sort of... <laughs> Depends on your headcanon. Like it's it's it genuinely it's genuinely strange um, in the old canons how long Yaskir <laughs> manages to live without any sort of change. He gets younger <laughs> looking in the games as it goes on. <laughs> it really is. Uh, mine and Magnus's headcanon is that he's is that he's a hell half elf. <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty boy who doesn't age. It scans. <laughs> I'm willing to subscribe to that headcanon. Like, and didn't you like find the passage of the books, Magnus, where like somebody explicitly compares his appearance to an elf? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I'm pretty inclined to believe the theory that he's a half elf. It would make sense. Yeah, and it's just hiding it. Well, yeah, for obvious yeah. reasons. For very obvious reasons that we get into this episode. Oh yeah, true enough. <laughs> yeah, because Geralt gets the job hunting a uh, devil as they call him, as he's trying to... Yes, and what's interesting, I think, about that, actually, is, um, you know, it's clearly not his bad reputation that's stopping him from working. It's, like, clearly his own guilt, because the reason he gets hired is that Yaskir recognizes him and sort of quite loudly dances around the 
in saying, oh, you're the white wolf, Geralt of Rivia. And then that's what draws the attention of sort of the, the peasant to come up to him and say, uh, I have a job for you. Uh, I hear you take no prisoners. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. So the bad reputation's actually kind of working for him, but he's the one who's not, I guess, taking care of himself at all with the work he's getting. That's a fair point, yeah. Yeah, so Gaskier uh, won't leave Geralt alone, and he follows him on uh, this mission. And they make their way up into the mountains. And this is where we get the first motif in the background. The first few chords of Toss a Coin in the background as they start chatting. Yes. Oh, yeah, shade. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh gosh, and this is also where... Yaskir starts monologuing at Geralt. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, you smell of destiny. It's, it's onion. You smell of death or destiny. It's onion. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> and then, of course, Gaskier makes the mistake of referring to Geralt as the Butcher of Blaviken. Yeah. Yes, which which does Geralt does not appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. No. So yes, this just sort of reminds us that uh, if there's a reason he's looking rough, it's because he is still extremely Sore. upset yeah. about what happened in Blaviken. One thing I really um, I love the the choice of filming location for. Posada slash uh, um just because you know for so much of this series we get sort of these like dark foggy woods mm. um, and this is just like a completely feels like a completely different world partly because it is it's filmed in Gran Canaria um, <laughs> but but I mean I love the 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 CG sort of towering village in the background is I love the houses of Posada they're like so cool just yeah. like. They they make a lot of sense. They're they're like a logical design for a village that's like based in like a relatively narrow valley. So uh, yeah, this is where basically you know we get um, the introduction to the nameless girl in the tower. She's being locked up, her mm-hmm. wrists bandaged up, and then she wakes up and in comes the domineering, ice cold, pragmatic uh, Tessia de Vries as she's introduced. This you know stony faced, beautiful sort of stands seven foot tall individual um yes and you get the tete-a-tete between this girl and to yes i love and hate this scene in equal measure i love and hate to in equal measure um so we still don't have a name for the the purple-eyed girl but to is calling her piglet um and that's how she'll be known for pretty much the rest of this episode um one thing i thought is wild about this is how roughly bandaged um the girl's wrists are um she's surrounded by sorceresses Mm -hmm. and they choose not to do anything to help her just they bandage her very roughly and just that's true when you contrast it with the clothing that they have which is you know immaculately tailored beautiful yes when we see the um when we see the uniforms in a minute they are beautiful pre-raphaelite sort of flowing dresses and i mean what the sorceresses have are just beyond gorgeous oh yeah like a a, a video um me and my girlfriend were watching on the um uh, just like the fashion of the witcher tv show uh, by, mm-hmm. uh there there's a polish girl uh, i think she went to uni glasgow actually uh named kirilla Zabrowska, who does like these videos on 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 like historical fashion in general and uh i think she mentioned that they like are very pre-raphaelite in like sort of style um mm-hmm. 
Uh, it was a very interesting video in general. I I hugely recommend anyone who uh, who's watching this to go uh, like look that up because um, uh, it was, what was, her it was name again? Uh, Karolina Zebrowska, I think. Okay. Yeah. I. It was quite fun. Mm. Cool. Uh, Sounds great. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, it's 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 a very it's a very pretty scene. This this particular bit where like they're all in the the. It's like a weird greenhouse type place because like there's you know like all these like trees growing like inside mm. this building and um just the like I like I like the colors of this of this particular scene mm. like it's, it's it's a nice blend of like this you know natural light and green and yellow and I stuff. I think I wanted to mention as well so from the last scene um something the the girl says which is um you should have let me die at least I would have control over that um which I think does kind of speak to the nature of her character a bit and it becomes obvious over the rest of the episode but you know oh yeah i had wanted to mention that yeah because it does become sort of central to her character that she feels like she needs to have control over everything yeah the concept of control to say as response to her when she says that wasn't taking control that was losing Mm. it really speaks to to say as um conception of order Mm -hmm. as well that we see yes because it's very obvious that like to say uh uh like uh, th- this is like already you know sets up like a personality clash between them very interestingly because like it's very obvious that the Seiya's conception of what it is to have control over yourself is to not let your emotions rule you uh, while uh Yennefer's, uh concept is more about like freedom for lack of a better word a, a-, a right to choose your own fate I really love all the visuals at Eratusa, to be honest. Like when we get that first sort of pen over the building at the start of this scene, it's very sort of institutional and very sort of like uh, imposing and aggressive, very aggressive architecture. Um, and just, yeah, the visuals of sort of like um, the sort of cell-like rooms. And then as you say, the, the how beautiful that greenhouse is, like all the visuals at Eratusa are just wonderful. It definitively establishes that this TV show really likes spires because it pits up <laughs> right there. Um, like, uh, actually, I wanted to make a note about um, like how th- it's sort of interesting because in the depiction of Aratusa as we have here in the TV series, uh, it differs slightly from book canon, where like you know it's based next to a large city, Gorsvelen. Yes. Uh, Mm-hmm. Like well, here it looks like it's a little bit out in the middle of nowhere. Like like the coast is like uh, basically you know uh, semi difficult to walk over mountain ridges. It's Winterhold from Skyrim. Yes, literally. Yeah. <laughs> and also the way that um, the the Tower of the Gull is as well is just like this like lonely spire on this very small island. And I if I recall correctly, sort of Thaneth was a bigger island yeah yeah like it's in in the in the um what's his face in the books it's it's sort of surrounded by like several like palaces that the mages use Mm -hmm. and stuff mind it's still quite a like mountain like island because um it's said in the books if i remember correctly that uh, um there's only a couple of ways in and out and there's all these sharp cliffs yeah, yeah. And, and it's yeah. crumbling because like the the water is literally yes. like washing up over even the uh cliffs above it's it's yeah, yeah. It's slowly falling apart um so back to the scene um this is i guess the first time we really start to see again explained how magic works in this world yeah it's pretty cool <laughs> um 
the idea of the power and balance. Yes, yeah, so Tisea explains to them that sort of um, magic is sort of the ordered control of chaos and that they need to find the balance between sort of the flower and the rock in order to levitate the rock. And so the first task she gives them, she gives them an incantation, says use this incantation to make the rock float without, you know, touching it. Um, and the first girl to succeed in doing this is Frangilla, but because she just tries to do it, I guess, based on her own innate power, she um, sucks all the life out of her hand. Mm. Yes, yes. This is, this is basically where, for the first time, we have a demonstration of how magic works in this universe. Yes. Yeah. Which, which I think is quite an interesting way of doing it. It's a, uh, it's, it's quite like, like it, it's in line with book canon. And it's quite divergent from the way uh, magic works in a lot of fantasy universes. Uh, yeah, there's no talk of mana or anything. Um, no, 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 there's just energy. You're just moving. It's the force. Yeah, you're just moving the life force <laughs> around, and so Tisea explains to them that they need to take sort of the life from the flower and use that energy to I mean, it's actually it's actually basic physics like energy doesn't come from nowhere and like <laughs> doesn't disappear energy can't be created or destroyed yeah, yeah. the zeroth exactly. law if i remember my state. physics right yeah yeah uh, like uh, i definitely don't remember my physics right but i even remember that so <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you're talking to two humanities people you're the dumb person <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think it's also worth noting in this scene she introduces the char- the characters by name and the ad- the magic they did, mm-hmm. but she only introduces a few of them. And at that point, you're kind of like, ah, okay. <laughs> some of these are yeah. I've got plot armor. Some of them don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, well no, she, oh, no. she gives a lot of their names through the episode. You get like Annika, Doralis. The, the, the ones uh, who die at the end do get do get names as well. Yeah, their names are Annika, uh, Doralis, right enough, yeah. and um... sorry, die is not the right word. We'll get to that. <laughs> the ones who yeah. don't make it. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so what What I think is really interesting here is, um, you know, all of the girls start sort of figuring out how to how to do it. And Yennefer is struggling and struggling. Um, and Tisea is, I think, interestingly soft with Yennefer here. Like, she has been sort of hideous to her this whole time. Uh, but when she says to her, you know, She's still horrible to her and she calls her Piglet. But the way she says to her, you know, you've lost a lot of blood. Um, and then comes over and says to her quite softly, sometimes a flower is just a flower and the best thing it can do for us is die. Is like weirdly reassuring that she's, you know, trying to reassure her that she's not, she's not just a inherently failure. terrible. She lost a lot of blood. She's tired. Um, you know, that she's being soft about not wanting to kill the flower. Um, yeah. And I think as well, it's interesting, she takes a bite out of the flower, like she saw the magician do when he made the the portal for her in the basement. Yes. Because I guess she figures that's something. But I think that's precisely mm-hmm. why, first of all, Tisea finds it interesting, like, what she's doing. Because you can see, like, from Tisea's, like, uh, gaze that moment. She, like, raises her eyebrow and stuff. Yeah, like, the camera very much gives us Tisea seeing Yennefer do that. Yeah, like, and I think, like, that's a particular moment why Tisea, uh is so slightly more tolerant towards Yennefer here than like she was previously. Because there's a thing about that you've lost a lot of bloodline. Is that meant to be literal? Because 
I didn't think it was because I thought I thought that was actually part of insulting her and calling her a piglet because you know like when a pig is being slaughtered, yeah, a stuck pig. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I just assumed it was literal because she slit her wrists and it took them a while, presumably, to notice. No, I think I think that's actually a, a an insulting metaphor. <laughs> like, um, but <laughs> b- b- partly because like I think I I don't I don't think what's happening to Yennefer there actually has that much to do with her wrist. Well, she's holding the flower, and the life is being drawn from the flower, not from her. Yeah. Or it should be. Like, also, the, the the life is not being drawn either way, because she's not managing to cast the spell. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. uh, it's not like with Fringilla, where... Fringilla did literally lose a lot of blood like, mm-hmm. by, <laughs> by casting the spell and using her hand as the fucking source. <laughs> Like, like, Yennefer definitely piqued Saya's interest but with doing the thing with the flower, mm-hmm. because, like, to say I can clearly see that it's a deliberate act. She's, yeah, she's not just doing it randomly. Yes. She's doing something that, like, she thinks will work, and to say is clearly interested in mm. that. And uh, so then Yen runs down to chill with her, with her new pal. <laughs> yeah. In the caves. <laughs> yes, and we finally officially find out that her name is Yennefer when she finally tells Istrid her name. Which is a nice name, actually. It's one of the more interesting fantasy comes up because it's kind of that uncanny valley yeah. of real name but fantasy name. <laughs> uh, but there's another. There's a situation uh, that constantly happens with people who have read the Lithuanian translation. Uh, that um, uh, the Lithuanian translation uh, transliterated the name into Lithuanian orthography, obviously. So uh, it ended up with something that is uh, very, very close to the English name Jennifer, except mm. it's, in, it has only one N in the middle, and instead of an I, it has an E. Like, it's still it's still meant to be pronounced Yennefer, because that's how you'd pronounce it if you transliterate Yennefer into Lithuanian orthography. Mm-hmm. But the end result of that was that a lot of Lithuanian fantasy nerds are still 100% convinced that her name is Jennifer, and they're <laughs> shocked to find out that it's not. <laughs> well, my middle name is Jennifer, so... <laughs> like, Just like, put on a Scandinavian lilt when you say your name and you're halfway there. <laughs> like, I genuinely constantly run into people who, like, have not produced... Like, Lithuanians who have never produced any other... Like Witcher content, but have read the books and they're and they're like, um, like like why is the why is the game calling her weird things like Yennefer? She's just Jennifer. And it's just it's like no, she's actually not. It's just our translation. <laughs> and it's not even our translation. It's just that you misunderstood what our translation is trying to do. <laughs> An attempt was made. An attempt was made. Like it's actually quite funny, yes. like reading reading the Lithuanian translation because sometimes, like, because it was written by genuine fantasy nerds, but also really mm. good translators. So they both understand the Lithuanian language well enough, and like, um, like they also understand, you know, like all of this fantasy lingo and such. So they end up with like um, a weird kind of situation where, like, for instance, Kahir's name was not translated, like, uh. uh a C will never be pronounced as a K in Lithuanian, but mm. but he's still given as C H C A H I R, and uh, his many many surnames, and his many many surnames, including even the W, which is not even the letter in the Lithuanian alphabet. Um, like, um, 
so so like it's a it's a weird thing where like sometimes they go for like authenticity and sometimes they go for like transliterating it into Lithuanian. I think the rule that they're trying to follow is if it's a northern name, then they transliterate. If it's not, uh, it. oh. so it makes Nilfgaard like more foreign. That's yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense in the dramatic. Like yeah. so, so you so you end up subconsciously thinking that like everyone in North is like Lithuanian speaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the next scene, uh, we are back with Siri. She has arrived in the refugee camp, um, and we learn that she is not very good at waiting her turn. She's used to being a princess and just walking up she to the, front of the queue. The queue, and. <laughs> Even then, wisely, even then, wisely goes and says, uh, "This food was provided by the queen. Don't touch me." You should be grateful. Don't yeah. touch like, me. Th- this yeah. is how you out yourself as someone related to the royal family, though, Siri. Be careful. <laughs> and I think what's interesting is what her the response when she says, "And this food was provided by the queen," is you know, "May she rot in hell." Yeah. <clears throat> oh, that's what it was. Yeah, may she rot in hell. I actually think it's very interesting how like a lot of the Sintran civilians have been made out like in the following handful of scenes you know you see a lot of like very different like opinions like politically speaking on what has just happened as like you know i i think it's just interesting because it feels like the Sintran population like especially these you know refugees fleeing Sintra at the moment are trying to make sense of what happened of this you know deeply traumatic event well yeah because it's a shock isn't it mm-hmm. the yeah kind of out of nowhere I mean, it's it's the event. It's a uh, like uh, I I watched I watched a video on like depictions of nine eleven in media yesterday. So this like immediately called that to mind. Like a lot of different varying interpretations of trying to make sense of like why this catastrophe happened, how it affects us mm-hmm. as you know a people. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's like very interestingly spun in the example of scenes because you see. You see this this lady who's very angry at the queen. You see uh, a noble boy who speaks to Siri, who's uh, hyper patriotic about the entire thing, shall we say, and has even turned to racism as part of it. Yes, actually, I think that's possibly something that we need to to start discussing yeah. with this episode. Is so Siri meets this boy um, who says his father was a tailor and made clothes for all of the, the best families in Sintra and that he made the cloak she's wearing. So that's how they get talking. Uh, and this is our first mention of sort of the war between humans and elves. Yeah, he's wearing elf ears around his neck. Yeah. So he's very Kurtz from, uh, Apocalypse Now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's got his necklace of elf ears. He says, uh, that Philavandral's uprising, and this is going to be an important timeline clue, happened the year before and his brother was killed. Um, and since then, he's been trying to make every day count, getting his revenge on the elves and, you know, cutting off their ears and keeping after he kills them and keeping them as trophies. It's basically involved that he implied that he's been, not even implied, but stated that he's been involved in several yes, hate crimes. doing a bit of yes. mild genocide. Yes, um, he is basically wantonly murdering elves, cutting off their ears um, and, and in revenge for the death of his brother. Um, and you know, he claims that the Philavandral's uprising was an attempt to claim Sintram land. Yes, and it's, it's also one of the first times we properly hear about the war as a thing that's ongoing from people's perspective, as you're saying. Yeah, but <laughs> so then they obviously, the family is from money. Um, and even the family, yeah. although they're like from like a very varied class background, because City, you know, immediately like like the the guy the guy basically shows City to his family's tent and like where his mother and younger brother are also sitting around the table and eating, 
Um, and like even though they're like from a very obviously like the same class background, they're all from money. They're all, by the looks of things, actually nobility. Yeah, uh, they're they're at the least bougie. Well, he says his father was a tailor, so they'd be the sort of but a tailor to the royalty, so they would have been the upper of the upper yeah, merchant like, class. And to be totally honest, like looking at his mom, like his father may have been a, a like tailor, but his mom was probably upper class in the proper medieval sense of the word younger daughter of a noble family maybe that sort of thing yeah i think something yeah. like that um, married down or something it, by this point it wasn't unusual you know like at the you know historical era in which it is implied that like witcherverse feudalism is in well, and even in our sort of world by the renaissance it wasn't uncommon for like younger members of noble families to marry upper class or upper 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 level merchants and that sort of thing so yeah, it feels like you know the the Witcherverse. they they've learned they've reached the pro the approximate technological advancement level of like you know the fourteen hundreds or so. Like yeah, like pretty advanced like plate armor and shit. You know, like they had metallurgy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. either either way, that the that detraction to the side, you do see like very varied like political opinions even within this group of three people because the older son, you know, is um, well, you know. <laughs> nationalistic shall we say well uh, the mother's racist towards the dwarf so don't worry he's one of the it, it's a half he's a halfling but uh was oh, a halfling sorry yeah but 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 uh yeah she, she's she's racist towards him but like she's not like hyper patriotic towards Sintra in the same way she blames Kalanfi for the war and then the younger brother seems like he just straight up actually doesn't buy into either of those beliefs especially because uh, he's he points out things like, well, it was the elves' land first. Yeah. yeah. So there is that range of opinions from the mother who, yeah, blames Calanthe for her husband dying in the war with Nilfgaard. The older son who supports Calanthe and hates elves, and the youngest who is trying to be more understanding of of all sides. And then, yeah. So the incident with the halfling servant is uh, the mother notices that Ciri's shoes are like indoor shoes that have been destroyed by walking through the woods for three days. Um, and says, oh, I'll get you some new shoes, and orders the halfling servant to give Siri his boots. And when Siri balks at the sort of cruelty of this, the mother misreads what she's sort of hesitant about and says, don't worry, he's one of the clean Yeah, it's one of the more overt statements of, like, casual racism so far. Yes. Uh, <laughs> poor soul halfling in the first season. <laughs> yes, the only halfling in the first season. Uh, and then we're back in <laughs> Doll Blathana. Yes. With our boy pitching his PR services for, I think, is it the first time you hear White Wolf? Projects him, he, he suggests to Geralt that he's going to be his, he's essentially his PR manager. And he almost breaks the fourth wall saying, oh, well, there's my bit of exposition. Yeah, there I go, just delivering exposition. <laughs> um... So yes, there's two things that we get here um, that are sort of character development for Gaskier and Geralt. One is that Gaskier is just jumping immediately into calling him chum. <laughs> um, and he tries to get up on Roach with Geralt and Geralt's <laughs> not having this. Don't touch Roach. <laughs> Ger Geralt just is not like having his like, you know, hyper touchy friendship right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, oh my gosh, and, like, Gaskier's so, like, familiar with him so quickly. Like, you know, Geralt's just trying to, like, do his thing, uh, you know, looking to see if there actually is a monster around. And, like, you know, Gaskier knows him walking away. And the first thing is, Geralt, don't leave me. Like, he's already 
like so into this friendship in a one directional way. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I want to mention as well the fact that they're in so called Bulbothana, like at Valley of the Flowers, but it's basically arid. Um it's just a yes. sort of, you know, deserty type thing. Which I think if you go into the books and the lore and everything like that, it's kind of typical of the sort of the way elven things are described and romanticized um, in the language describing them when really actually it's not that great. And, you know, we talked about the golden palaces and towers. And as you'll see later on, when you actually meet um, whomever it is, it's not the case. But we'll come to that later. But then obviously they're after this. They're 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 not the yeah. great stage. Like, um, but yeah. like, it's it's like, it, you, you get a I feel like you get a hint. It might just be me retroactively reading from, you know, knowing enough about the lore beforehand. But I thought that like already, you know, like for when Yaskir says bequeath this land to us like the, you know like the, the bullshit sense is tingling right guys like <laughs> like yeah. no nobody just bequeaths land <laughs> and we've just had this scene where you know series being told about humans wantonly murdering elves and elves yeah especially like given that like it happens <laughs> after that scene like if you're if you're a cautious viewer yeah. you'll realize that like shit something's not right here mm. yes but it's so it's such a hard emotional thing with this scene and with the previous one because basically we've just had sort of you know hate crimes described to us um and then here's Yaskir sort of being quite sort of oblivious about what's actually happening with the human elf relations and then also we've got just like the hilarious wonderfulness of Yaskir being so excited about being out on this adventure and being so jokey um i mean so much of this whole scene is played for comedy you know uh yasker asks Geralt what he's looking for when he's clearly looking around for like the monster he's supposed to be hunting and he says blessed <laughs> yasker pauses for like half a second and says i don't really go in for that <laughs> It's just, it's, it, it, that scene is, like, incredible because it's just like, you ask her, wow, you really, you know nothing about, like, basic hunting procedure if you, like, are seriously bothering Geralt at this moment. I think it's a, a very interesting moment where, like, um, uh, Yasker then goes, like, uh, I can't remember what the exact phrasing is, but it's just like, you know, um, what's this devil look like? And Geralt goes, devils don't exist. And... Um, <laughs> He's like, but you took the money anyway. <laughs> like, um, yeah, like Gerald. Gerald goes like, sometimes there's monsters, sometimes there's money, and it's really very rarely both. Um, That's the life. And but like, Gerald is also like clearly like looking for something because it's a, 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 you can see from like you know just how Gerald is behaving that as a professional he knows there is something going on, even if devils don't exist, mm. something is happening and. He's, you know, doing the job of investigating. And then, of course, we get the sight of the, the devil. Yes. So he's launching projectiles. One sort of grazes Geralt <laughs> like and the other balls. one. Oh, like, and, uh... Uh, yeah, he's a slingshot. <laughs> yes, yeah. like metal like, golf balls. Like, what, what, like, I immediately thought of when they, I saw those depictions of them, I was like, they look like golf balls. <laughs> yeah, they've got that sort of divoted sort of appearance. What's great is that the one grazes Geralt and then Yaskir is so excited that there's actually a monster that he does... No self-preservation <laughs> whatsoever. I just have to see this. <laughs> <laughs> Act two begins. I have to see this mythical beast for myself, and then immediately conked it. Locked in the middle of the forehead. Poor guy. Yeah, he is just so brilliantly cast, though. His like physical like, acting here is just. I, I hope. I hope. Just like Renfrey's actor, I hope that 
Joey BT gets all the rules for the rest of eternity. <laughs> as long as he still has time for his band. I hope they cast uh... him in everything. Uh, either way, we encounter the quote-unquote devil, who is actually... Who uh, does look like a devil. does look like a devil, um, if a very badly CGI'd one. Um, um, <laughs> yes. Who is actually a sylvan. He introduces himself yep. as such. Torque. A rare and intelligent creature. Is <laughs> that so you talk? Of course I talk. Or as Gerald <laughs> describes him, a dick with balls. <laughs> yeah, the worst thing is how clearly pleased with himself I, I Gerald love, is. I love when Gerald this. makes jokes and like is visibly pleased at himself. It's fantastic. <laughs> you motherfucking goat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the best thing in the series. It's like Gerald authentically it's... feeling pleased with himself. Yes, because there's not just that one. There's just what happened with you. Did your mother fuck a goat? <laughs> and then the Sylvan comes back with did your motherfucker snow bear <laughs> which we see how touchy Geralt is about his mother oh, of course yeah, yeah actually yeah you sort of notice that that moment yeah which is going to be interesting later on in the series guys that's all I'm saying <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, it does remind me like uh, in one of the lines one of the lines in the books I think he describes one of Renfrey's men who's a half elf with the with the very similar phrase um like like when when he gets mocked for like not knowing who who his mother is, he he retorts with, "Well, at least my I think my mother didn't wander as often in forests as yours." <laughs> <laughs> Mild yeah. bit of anti half elf racism there, Geralt. Yeah. Problematic. <laughs> Problematic fave. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone in these books is, is a problematic fave. <laughs> uh, Geralt, not long from that moment, blacks out. <laughs> yes, he's uh, hit in the head by someone behind him. Um, After sparing him. And that sort of, the end of that, blacks out. And then... We're back at Aratusa. So this is the scene where we get the young women basically getting tested for their mind reading ability or is it uh, mental transference or something they refer to it as thought transference basically telepathy and yen is again failing miserably and basically lies to zaseya who immediately identifies it and just lays into her rather unceremoniously (laughs) (laughs) i think at one point she says a line even if you were a beauty no one would love you which is Yes, so the, the, the um, task that she was doing was they were supposed to be reading each other's greatest fears and she um, lies and says that Annika, her partner's greatest fear, is snakes. And to say, uh, yeah, she rips into her, she says to her, uh, you've been here for weeks, you struggle with basic tasks, it took you weeks to lift your stone and now you lie to me your greatest fear makes so much sense even if you were beauty still no one would love you it's basically wizarding school making <laughs> what's amazing is just like how just like stony Tesea is like she's just like looks up from her book and it's just like her hand just like lo- just like lazily against her necklace and just like tears Yennefer mm. apart with just like a stone cold face yeah it's like yeah. uh, Tesea's like emotions are not per se on display at any point throughout the scene it's quite yes. impressive like it's just very good acting mm-hmm. and yes i love her she's incredible um so as has become her custom yennefer storms off to go see istrid um she's carrying a bit of the insecurity from this uh 
face off into it. And she's quite sort of oppositional and sarcastic with him when she first arrives. But I actually think the scene with Istrid is really, really sweet. This is like mm, is. Yeah. the nicest thing in their relationship um where she's you know she's been struggling with the thought transference and he helps her learn how to do it Uh, i think i think it's a generally really really nice scene in that regard like istrid is just being quite kind the only the only thing i will drag istrid for here uh and i will is the moment is the moment at the beginning where when she's complaining he goes yeah my my thought transference trial at bonnard took (laughs) three days like in a sort of casual look at me I'm so great kind of voice like <laughs> well she was only at it for like a few hours I think yeah yeah but uh, at the same time he's doing it like it in like such a like with such a smug smile and tone yeah given she's just been told you took weeks to lift a stone and now he's saying oh it took me three days to do mind yeah like and it's just uh, uh, and also like just uh, on, the, on just the more basic level it's just Istred, she's complaining to you about her problems. Have you just concerned not being a man about this and listening instead of talking about yourself? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. You should have just let her vent. But I do love that. Um, what I think is interesting is like she was failing at this test of sort of finding the greatest fears, which is such a negative thing to have to do. And also with, I think there's sort of a two way street, right? She's supposed to be reading Annika, and Annika's supposed to be reading her. And I think. One thing we know about Yennefer is that she's stubborn and maintains her boundaries. And she, I think she would have really struggled with letting Annika in. And it's just so sweet that Istrid shows her all these lovely things. And she asks, you know, are these the things you love the most? And he says, no, these are the things I think you you would love. I just, I think that was just a really sweet moment. This series Istrid is genuinely really sweet. Yes. I like him. Yeah, screw book Istrid, but this series Istrid is very sweet. Book series Tread is much more like Stregobor's Apprentice in a very obvious way, <laughs> but like yeah, no, it's, it's it's a genuinely very lovely scene, which is and they have a wee smooch. Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, uh, yes, which is do. quite sad because then they cut back to misery again. <laughs> yes, this is a real emotional whiplash mm. episode. They they cut back to Siri, who's struggling to fall asleep in the in the tent of the noble family, and. Uh, so is the noble lady, and she's saying, I'm very tired, but I cannot sleep. You're still scared, aren't you? And, you know, something along those lines. Uh, and they actually share what I thought was actually quite a nice, if quite depressing moment about how much they've both, both lost. Which I think they can, you know, on some level actually relate to each other precisely because they come from similar backgrounds, which is to say they were fucking loaded. Um, <laughs> and, well, Siri was the the crowd princess she also i think what's key in this scene is she mentions to a stranger that she's looking for Geralt of rivia yes it's the first time she she mentions i will that. say yeah. i think it's slightly wild that the um lady is like eh, never heard of him when you would think that everyone in Sintra when you ask her going about telling tales about Geralt of rivia and across all of the northern kingdoms and also he is quite well known in Sintra, especially in the upper class. Yeah. But also, Yaskir by this point is still already going round as a, you know, world-famous bard singing tales of Geralt of Rivia. So, and we know from the books that Sintra is where he met his girlfriend, so... Yeah. So, and then in more whiplash, suddenly we're back. But, oh, we, we get... This, this, yeah, this whole scene gets 
really quite dark actually because Siri has to like tell the the lady that she lost both of her parents when she was a baby and it's just clear that it's just at this moment that she's having to process that even though you know she didn't she didn't see Calanthe's body did she so this is where she's just having to process and it's and it's actually the first time that Siri mentions what happens to her parent happened to her parents rather than her grandmother which uh, is if nothing else important plot development for those of you who have not read the books and so Siri and the 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 mother of the family they're both crying um about sort of their various losses and the mother says that you know we take care of our own um that she'll take care of Siri though that line reads a little bit sinister given her family's position on elves and the way she treats the halfling yeah yeah like I genuinely like it's 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 like you know maybe like nice in a kind of superficial way along the lines of you're our compatriot we'll take care of you but also you don't extend that courtesy to your compatriots who are elves or halflings so yes it's not great yeah no it's a it's a it's a very very typical insight into the sort of racism we'll go we'll see going forward so it's interesting that like it's after this that it cuts back to Geralt no, it's right back to Yennefer Yes, because then it's the lightning scene, isn't it? Yeah, so over, the, the scene's opened with Tessia uh, leading all of the, the women into the room and Torlara, the Tower of the Gull, and she addresses everyone by name except Yennefer, whom he calls Piglet, and then introduces the concept of catching lightning in a bottle. Um, it's like, that's, yes. that's impossible. It's like, no, it's magic. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> and it sort of leads on from there. Uh, yeah, so Duralis, who is one of um, T- Yennefer's friends, is the first one to go up. And it's actually showing sort of Yennefer's developing friendships with some of these girls. You know, she says to Duralis, you know, don't worry, you can do it. And then Duralis very much can't. Yeah, do it. does not go well. Um, she survives, but does yeah, not go well. Yeah, she's. Oh, but it, like, they don't. Oh, it shows how disposable these girls are, though, because she gets struck by the lightning, and the other girls say she's still breathing, and to say is like, just move her. She doesn't try to heal her or anything. Like, yeah, and just before she does the test, Tesea actually like goes up to her and rips the, uh, like sort of uh, uh, cloth out of the bottle, little... like and like pulls her hand up so she holds it up. Like it was quite like a harsh. Well, that was her. Yeah, it was her teddy. She pulls a teddy away from her. Yeah, she had a little teddy bear. Like she's just a yeah. little girl. It's yeah. kind of upsetting <laughs> uh, because yeah. it's actually also like the more. Like, 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 Zaya has said a lot of unreasonable, horrible, and mean things up till now, but she, this is the first moment where she, like, really demonstrates, like, physical harshness, because she's always demonstrated restraint of a sort, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, either way, uh, Duralis fails, um, Yennefer tries her best, and something more uh, interesting yeah. happens with Yennefer than with Duralis. Like, you sort of see her, like, absorb the lightning or something. Um, yeah, it goes like, into her chest. Mm-hmm. And, but but she's off to the side as well. Yeah. Sabrina does it. Sabrina yeah. pulls it off. Um, and yeah. uh, immediately, you know, like, uh, what's her face? Tesea praises her. The strong among the weak. Yeah, which uh, is such a fashy way of praising something. <laughs> Jennifer like... obviously thinks so, too. Uh, Elifra obviously thinks so too because she fucking flings a lightning bolt at Tessia in a rage. Yeah. Uh, which is 
I, I've got Badass. a beer here with you. It was incredible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> both Yennefer are throwing that lightning it's, it's bolt a cool on the way bit. to say I just like casually flicks it up to the Deflect. Yeah. Incredible. Yes, both of those things are fantastic. Um, and um, then, of course, Tissaia has a pretty strict talking to to Yennefer and explains that she lost control there. And uh, Yen goes, and actually, I felt that, like this this scene for the first time, for the first time in a conversation between Tissaia and Yennefer, I actually got an impression of like genuine warmth of a yes, sort. The way she says mages like us. Well, respect on some level, at least. Like it's it's visible that like you know how do you put this? Tissaia's foster parenting is a horrible parenting method. Do not endorse it at all, obviously. <laughs> but, like, she's clearly doing it because she actually sees a little bit of herself in Yennefer, where she yes. says some mages, like Sabrina, uh, suppress their emotions. Mages like us are consumed by them. Yeah. Which and... is funny, given she's been stone-cold yeah. the entire yeah, time. Yeah, and it's... And you, but, like, also that, like, is interesting and so right, because it's the first time you understand what the problem is. Like, you understand that the Seiya has suppressed her emotions because, you know, like, she needed to treat herself this way to not be, you know, controlled by them. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's really interesting. It's very much a Beneath Still Waters thing with yes. Um And she says, she's a swan. it's your job to control chaos, not to become it. And she's really, for the first time, also laying out what the importance of a sorceress's job is. So she says, you know, if I sent you to advise a king and you let your feelings get hurt... You know, and that leads to the the king making terrible decisions for his kingdom and people dying. That's my fault for sending you. Yeah, and even more importantly, like I think the interesting line in there was like not even um, his people dying, but his people turning against us. Oh yes, that was it. <laughs> like, which I think was like is a is a is an interesting highlight of what really are the priorities of the fucking <laughs> brotherhood of sorcerers in this in this universe going forward. Um, either way uh yeah it's it becomes it doesn't really exactly become understandable but it becomes clear why to say it treats the other for the way she does it's a reason not an excuse yes and you see her wrist scars as she's sort of describing being overcome or consumed by emotions and all that kind of thing um, oh yes that's true yeah she takes the bandages off mm-hmm. and it sort of zooms in on them oh yes because she says your first night here you tried to kill yourself tonight you almost killed someone else yep yeah um is it back to Gale- Geralt or the Jumpstone or Yes. It is, yes, now finally back to Yaskir and Geralt. Yeah, the Geralt and Yaskir are... In a pickle. Yeah. <laughs> I love that Yaskir's first line here was, now's the part where we escape. <laughs> <laughs> he just, like, assumes Geralt knows what he's doing, has it under control. And, the... and Geralt's like, no, now's the part where we die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it just becomes very, very obvious that, like, the, like for the first time, both the viewer and Yaskir understand that Geralt doesn't have everything under control at all times. <laughs> yes. You know? yeah. He's the protagonist, not the centre of the world. Yeah. <laughs> not not a superhero. Witcher. <laughs> superhero. Uh, yeah. And there's the cool bit, there's the sort of, as he's getting the ship beaten out of them, you know, they say everything you touch, you destroy. And as he says that, they snap the, the loot in too. <laughs> Yeah, like at that very I, I, think, I think it's actually a very interesting moment because it like demonstrates above anything else that humans and elves aren't really that different from each other. <laughs> Generally speaking, there's like like um, it's um, I think it's interesting to compare this moment to the book rendering of this scene, like where 
where I think at one point, if I remember correctly, Philavandril also, like, mutters something about how, like, you know, humans are ruled by emotion and, you know, irrational and all this stuff. And, like, and meanwhile, Teruviel has just been in a, in, in a frothing rage, which yes. starts yes. to just destroy a loot for no apparent reason. Also, she's, like, enraged enough that she's, like, not really paying attention to what she's doing. She's, even though they're tied up, she has close enough to Geralt for him to headbutt her in the face. Yeah. Oh, yeah, to, she's, like, to get she's malkied. She's just irrational and... And, like, you know, this this anger is entirely understandable given everything that is explained to us both prior to this point and going forward throughout the conversation where, you know, we learn that Dolblatana was not, surprise, bequeathed, bequeathed to the humans, but taken yes. the elves. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> much of the Witcherverse. Yeah, so we get a really quick turnaround on our opinions of what's happening here because we have Yaskir yelling at Teruvial that you hide in your golden palaces and he calls her pointy, which seems like a racial slur. It's a little bit of a racial <laughs> slur, isn't it? Yeah. And then we realize actually that Teruvial is sick and that they're starving. And then this is where Philibandrel comes in, which is, of course, another timeline clue because this is clearly before his rebellion. They're on the edge of the world. They're sick, they're starving, they're stealing food. Yeah. Um, whereas in Ciri's timeline, he had an uprising trying to take Sintran land. Yes. Yeah, and the man who was hunting the elves was fighting Philavandro, he said, or Philavandro yes. was trying to take their land. Yes. So this is clearly long before that, so we've got sort of a t- timeline tie-in. And as well, is it is it a spoiler to mention that um, Teruvial, and I think Teruvial is in the Witcher game, the first one. Eh, not especially, because to be totally honest, she's not that important a character there. Yeah. <laughs> so she, yeah, she turns up in, in the games as well as a moderate character, not like an important one, but you get a couple of quests yeah. from her. So she's, yeah. she's a quest she's a giver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, um, the thing you see in this scene, more or less her evil chat, and uh, the Geralt, Geralt is this very particular, he, he's he's suggesting essentially that we're not so different you and i well yeah he, he says no matter what you choose you'll come out bloody yes because uh, like- so we should probably contextualize that this is because philavandrel is saying i don't want to kill you but i have to because if i let you go you'll tell them we're stealing and i can't yeah. have that and so this is where this is what prompts Geralt saying ah so you're choosing the lesser evil no matter what you choose you'll come out bloody and hating yourself Yes. It is essentially Geralt once again stating that, like, you know, all this lesser evil choosing bullshit is bullshit. Yeah. And then Philavandril has an amazing monologue in response to this, you know, um, and this is also sort of a timeline clue. Philavandril is depicted perfectly in this scene, I think. Like, honestly, like, I really liked uh, his monologue about what coming down to the mountain from the mountains would mean. For his yes, I actually have the script in front of me right now. <laughs> um, it's brilliant. So, so basically, Geralt is accusing him of refusing to adapt, and Philavandro responds, um, you think this is about pride. My elders worked with humans and got robbed of all they had, and when they fought back, we were slaughtered. The great cleansing humans called it. I call it digging a mass grave for everyone I loved. And now the humans proudly watch these very fields grow, our babies' fertilizer for their grain. Yeah. It's a pretty fucking, how do you put this, dramatic. So one thing I think is is interesting here, besides how amazing this monologue is, um, is we're getting some timeline clues here. So Philavandrel is talking about the Great Cleansing as if it happened in the distant past, and we're going to get a scene soon talking about the Great Cleansing again. Um, and the zoom in on Yaskir's face during this monologue 
is like he's like he's tearing up and he's 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 suddenly yeah he looks like he's been punched in the gut with this sort of like revelation that everything he's been told is a lie yeah this phil vandro talks about you know oh we tried working with humans and were betrayed and he talks about the great cleansing to it i think and as well Geralt uses an interesting turn of phrase where he says you know cutting off your ear to spite your face yes which is again a slight <laughs> racial yeah. inference given that's their predominant identifying feature yes and i think what's also interesting um in terms of timeline clues is basically um you know Geralt tells Philavandral to go somewhere else and Philavandral's like if I bring my people down from these mountains it would mean bowing to human sovereignty then like slaves of us and pariahs of half-blood children and then Geralt says well then go somewhere else rebuild get strong again and show the humans you're more than what they fear you to be and this kind of sounds like he's basically inciting what happens with Philavandral <laughs> Sintra. Well, lie. It's heavily implied that that's, that's an, an end result of Geralt suggesting that. But is, also, is, is Geralt a founder of this Goyatel? Oh, no. <laughs> yes, basically. Oh, no. <laughs> like, but also, like, you know what's, what I think is interesting? Um, like, the fact that Geralt's advice is utter bullshit. <laughs> because, uh, because like the the elves, the elves retreated to the mountain to the blue mountains not because like you know like, because they basically quote unquote went somewhere else <laughs> like yes. um there's it's it's like it's like difficult to find anywhere else to go that they could reasonably go yes um, and the other thing is is Geralt's telling them you know show them that they're more than what you say they are you know i have learned with them so that i may live but this is the episode where we see that Geralt's barely living he looks a mess he's broke he's in ragged armor that barely is holding together like he's not living with them so that he may live he's on almost as bad shape as these elves are at this point i mean yeah uh, like I, I another interesting thing i think is um worth noting like is the chat that we're both mutants Yes, um, this comes out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like that we both stand out. Uh, but like, Geralt is trying to like get them to empathize with him. Don't call me human. Mm-hmm. And the Sylvan does. It works. I, I'm not sure. I totally actually buy most of what Geralt says in terms of like actual advice of what to do, because I'm pretty sure that he said most of that only because he really wanted him and Yaskir to be let go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I really read him as sincere basically all the time, but maybe that's because I'm reading Book Geralt into it and he is too... I think there, I think there's a degree of genuine sincerity in terms of like, like you know, the emotional state behind it, but like, but like also um, there are hardly like coherent political opinions yet, right? You don't really like yeah. see like, um, because because like, yeah, there's there's that entire thing of like don't choose the lesser evil all evils are bad but like also he starts with i hope you realize that you're all going to die anyway up in the yes. of yours and then finishes with well then go somewhere else rebuild show the humans <laughs> that they're like it sounds like he's being sincere and i do like I do, i'm not like saying that he's like pulling this out of his arse or anything but like but i'm not convinced that he is going into this with, like, a completely thought-through position on the Elven question. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, basically, Teruviel is inciting Philavandral to kill them both. Teruviel is definitely the, the fucking 
a hard militant wing of yeah. the, this discussion at the moment. She's the provo. <laughs> the provo. <laughs> and it looks like uh, Philavandrel's about to go through with it, and Torque, the Sylvan, tries to make the argument that Geralt's different like them, that Geralt chose to spare Torque's life when he could have easily killed him. Um, and then we get Geralt's great line as, as Philavandrel goes to kill him, you know, if you must kill me, I am ready, but the Sylvan's right, don't call me human. <laughs> yeah, that's a great line. I think I think it's also an interesting thing because like um if you tap into a little bit into Book Geralt for this moment, you sort of know that the reason why he doesn't like being called human is not even because he like really strongly somehow dissociates himself from humanity. It's because he thinks he's a freak. Oh yeah, like, he's like it's a self loathing. It's derived from self loathing. Oh that's true. Which like actually yeah. when you keep that in mind makes this very kind of sad. Like, I that... honestly think that if you must kill me, I am ready. I like as much as Gaskier later tries to read that as being reverse psychology, given how Geralt has been this episode in terms of he's clearly still processing what happened with Renfrey, even if this is, you know, years and years and years later, he's in bad shape. He looks as rough as he ever has. I think that was a genuine moment of, okay, fine. The fact the fact that he starts talking about the lesser evil is telling in that regard. So yes. like I think I think definitely there's a high degree of Geralt is literally just processing his trauma with Renfrey. Yeah. And I think so I think it's fair, even without leaning on the books, to read sort of his self loathing into Don't Call Me Human. Oh, my poor boy. Yeah. I love him <laughs> so much and he's so sad. And I mean don't forget at this point we've also only thing we've been told about Witchers and Emotions at this point is Stregabor's line about Witcher's not having any emotions, and here we're clearly seeing just like a broken, depressed, remorseful, yeah, <laughs> defeated man. Yeah, you 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 see this definitely already here that like he's basically willing to die because of how much he fucked yeah. up. Like, like it's not unfair to probably describe it that way. Yeah. Um, like he tries to he tried to convince them to let Yaskir go. Um, mm-hmm. I. I don't really like how, like in the in the show, they've like toned it a little bit down from the book, where it was more like he's so brave in the book. It was a more like prolonged defense of Yaskir in the book. It was like, uh, mm-hmm. you can kill me, but he has friends. They'll come. They'll they'll come. You know, to take revenge on you for him. The funny thing is, Yaskir is so stupid and so brave mm-hmm. in the book because yeah, Geralt's like, like like yeah, don't kill him. He's he's an important bard, and he. And then Yaskir is just like, no, I'll take revenge for you, Geralt. Like. I'll- these bastards <laughs> down to the end of the world <laughs> which is amazing given they've known each other for five minutes at this point i i mean it's it's pretty cool have to say like yes. i wish that had been in the in the episode i feel like it would have given like a bit of punch to the entire situation uh yeah we were back at um the spooky dungeon yes in Aratuza. yes 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 we're we're back to Aratuza, and it's the scene where yennefer runs into the scene where she runs into torlar and says that Tosaya has I... found out about us oh yes and she's gonna send me home and we'll never see each other again and then and yes. then Easter right. tells her about like the the history of torlara that was that the Aratuza was built by the elves not, not slaves not as slaves um which which Yennefer is initially surprised by. How could she know history? And he tells her that you know he's been researching a a, a special kind of magic uh, that he's you know been 
using the fine of it flowers yeah, so for... she actually specifically incites the question about this because she comes in and says to say has found out about us i'm going to be sent home we'll never see each other again and he says no we'll see each other again she says how with those special untraceable portals of yours yeah yeah oh, yes like and and then she conjures one of those portals up almost immediately and he wonders why and she tells him it's because she's She's a quarter elf. Yes, and this is another timeline clue because she immediately says that her father died in the Great Cleansing. And just a few minutes ago, Philip Andrel was talking about the Great Cleansing, like it happened a generation, two generations ago. Yes. And this is something that's happened to teenage Jennifer when she was a baby. So it gives us a clue that this is quite distant in the past. It's also where we get our first reference to the conjunction of the spheres and the human war on the elves. And a human attempt to gloss over what they did to that. Yes, yes. Um, erasure of history and all that. Mm-hmm. And this is very interesting because, like, Istred reveals that those Fenuet flowers that grow in there are the key to, to this to this special elven magic. And then, and this may be fucking real, I'm not gonna lie, we, tur- we find out, because the scene cuts to, like, after they, like, kiss or something, like, to, to Yennefer meeting Tissaia, like, and giving her the flower, and uh, it turns out that, like, Yennefer had been, like, manipulating Istred the whole time, like, con- mm. like told by Tissaia to, like, you know, it, that she will get, like, will be allowed to ascend if she gets uh, that knowledge out of Istred, and mm. I just thought that was incredible. Like, when I watched well, they don't, those... Yeah, ad- they don't tell you that she's doing yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, is... like when I watched that couple of couple of seconds, I was like, "What? Yes! Wow! Yeah. That is <laughs> like I yes. act like this was the like this was the only time like up till now." Uh, and part of it was that like you know I had uh, like yeah the first story was was the most unfamiliar to me because very little of it is covered in the books and mostly in like a couple of flashbacks, yes. but. Um, it was the first time in this in the TV series that I got a sort of a Song of Ice and Fire style, you know, when a twist happens and somebody unexpectedly dies, you didn't really like, you know, expect to, like kind of thing, because I was like, fuck, I don't think this was gonna happen, like, and yes. then because they want to give you a more emotional whiplash, it turns out that Istred was manipulating Yennefer. Like, or of all people, Stregobor. Yeah. Stregobor! <laughs> Shakespeare. And it says such a good job of setting up that there's like a rivalry between Benard and Eratusa, there's power struggles within the Brotherhood, that Stregobor and Tissaia are sort of nemeses in a way. Um, and of course, the thing that Istred leaks to Strigobor about Yen is that she's quarter elf. And I think it's as well, it, it tails on from what the f- was in the first episode and Geralt not trusting magicians and thinking they're all duplicitous plotters out for each other and then in the second episode that's directly confirmed as being what magicians do. Yes. <laughs> in every single meaningful way, yes. yes. I think it's so great that we spent this whole episode solely introducing us to all of the the hatred for elves and the 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 wars between humans and elves and then we get a character who is sort of the embodiment of sort of well obviously there's relationships between humans and elves too because she's a quarter elf but now she's sort of um being informed on because of this mixed blood she says that um you know her twisted spine is a result of um, yeah her mixed blood which isn't 
likely true because there's loads of half elves and quarter yeah, elves. Yeah, there's no reason in the lore why that would be the case. That's a racist dad. So she's got a lot of internalized anti-elf racism and ableism and self-loathing. That gets, and she's just, that's why no one will love me. It's it's clearly derived from yeah. racism, like that has been internalized. And then after that scene, of course, um, Tessia calls Yennefer by her name for the first time. Yes, so she's earned Tessia's respect by having shown that she can control her emotions enough to manipulate someone she seems to genuinely like. Because, yeah, like, to say as to say as metric for what is control is being calm enough to manipulate another. Mm, yes. <laughs> which is slightly sociopathic, but also... Yes. You know, there's a logic in it, I suppose. <laughs> Either way, uh, then we... Is it back to Siri that we cut? The Nilfgaardians attack the refugee camp, and we see Siri waking up, you know, like, woken by this... By this attack, and um, uh, the noble lady yes. bullies her halfling servant one time too many and gets stabbed to death repeatedly <laughs> by him. <laughs> Which, right in front of Siri. So now we've just had Siri talk about her dead parents. We've just had Siri just for the first time process that Calanthe's dead. Now she's had this new mother figure for like a day and has to watch her be stabbed to death yes. in front of her. Uh, oh, and yeah. is rescued by Ratboy. Yes. Uh, yes. Who who saves her from the camp? Uh, just as we see the Black Rider right in, actually, uh, in the midst of the. And chaos. as she's escaping, she notices that the older son of the family, the one who first sort of brought her to the to the tent, has also been killed by an arrow. Yeah. Arrow to the chest, which is of course carries its own connotations because what's the number one weapon that the elves like to use in the forests? It's arrows um, and archers yeah. which kind of you know brings a sort of pathos to that as well i think yeah like and uh siri escapes around this time mm -hmm. we jump back to Gennifer. it's it's the beginnings of the slug scene it's um she she waits in her room to be like because to say i said that she'll be allowed to send wait for the knock nobody knocks on yep. her yes. door only on those of people around her but she follows to say anyway mm -hmm. to a room with a pool, a cavern with a pool, where Tis she watches to say a turn Annika Larkin Doralis into snakes, or rather eels, as she clarifies. Uh, and and to say goes push them into the pool, which I don't know about you guys. Yeah. My immediate reaction was, "What the fuck?" <laughs> yes, well, that seems like it was Yennefer's initial reaction too. It's ice because yes. it's so ice basically cold. Explained that the girls, she's taken away their control, but they still have power, and they are basically the batteries for Eratusa. And to me, this reads as two things. It reads as Tessaia trying to see one more time if Yennefer can suppress her emotions to do what she has to do, and also to make Yennefer complicit in this crime and therefore tied to the Brotherhood. I think there's definitely like a high degree of the second one because uh, mm -hmm. um, it's sort of like a destination to the mafia, right? Like, um, yeah. you have to commit at least <laughs> one crime together with them to, like, be a full-fledged member. That sort of thing. Exactly. Except for wizards. In this case, the crime is murdering <laughs> teenage well, girls. they're not technically dead, but close they're enough. They're not technically dead. They're just, they're just ma magical slave batteries. Yes. They've been, ma they've been matrixed, basically. They've been matrixed. Um, yes. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Tessia says to bring back to the flower theme is sometimes the best thing a flower can do is die yes. which rather contradicts what she's just said <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <they're> not... <laughs> um, well i mean it's still a sort of death you have to remember that yes yeah it's they're... certainly not a meaningful human life anymore in, no. in a meaningful sense 
Yeah, no, they are they are eels, and they are stuck in that pool forever. Frankly, with their small eel brains, they might not even comprehend that, like, like you know, everything that humans do anymore. Yeah, they might literally be eels. Yeah. This is, so. This is quite a quite a quite a dramatic moment. And before Yennefer can actually do it, uh, we cut to Geralt, who has gotten out of the elves' grasp through a little bit of reverse psychology. <laughs> yes, and Yaskier is so totally unfazed by the whole thing. And yeah, he's just like joking about like, oh, that's a great bit of reverse psychology there. Kill me, I am ready. <laughs> he's just like he's so <laughs> unfazed. He's just a little excitable puppy, and he's like, yeah, she's she's a bit sexy, isn't she? Yes. So basically what happens is the elves let them go. Geralt gives Philavandral all of his money and then Philavandral gives Yaskir his loot to make up for the one that got broken. So poor Geralt, even though he's broke, he hands over all of his coin because he feels bad. Yeah. And uh, and um, Yaskir says he has newfound respect for the elves and writes, uh, tries to write a nice, accurate song that humanizes them and explains their experience and quits. <laughs> Because he just decides it's too complicated. And decides to write instead. Toss a coin to your witcher. Yes, now get... such a hit that my Spotify Discover Weekly playlist <laughs> it virtually solely consists of covers of Toss a coin to your witcher. I didn't even try to do that. Like, I simply liked maybe one or two. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that's all that appears on that playlist. Well, it happened with them um, in Skyrim with uh, the Dragonborn comes on YouTube. That exploded <laughs> yeah. with covers. Some some fantasy music is just really yeah. good. <laughs> so basically, Geralt tries to get rid of Yaskir. He's like, this is where we part ways for good, Bard. And then Yaskir says, no, I promise to change the public's tune about you. And that's this is where he starts singing Toss the Coin to Your Witcher, which is extremely inaccurate. Um, Geralt objects uh, and asks... Yaskir where his newfound respect is and Yaskir says that respect doesn't make history. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. It's just at the same time. God damn it, Yaskir. Like, if Geralt funded the Scoia'tael, you're probably inciting a pogrom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. Um, this is all sort of as Yaskir is singing. Um, this is all sort of intercut with Yennefer actually pushing the eels into the pool. Yeah. And with a seed of... Um, Ratboy finally speaking to Siri because Siri notices that he's an elf. Yes, he's uh, taking his hat off. He introduces himself as Dara because the showrunners had to give him an Irish name. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so Siri realizes that, yes, he's an elf. And I think what's interesting here is when she introduced herself to the family in the tent, she introduced herself as Fiona to stay hidden. But then she introduces herself to Dara as Siri. Yeah. To be fair, she technically was not oh, yeah. lying when she said her name was Fiona, She's, because what? that's like her third Cirilla, name. Cirilla, Fiona, Rhiannon. Cirilla, Fiona, Ellen, Rhiannon. All right, good to know. I, I can't remember much of the sort of heraldry and descent and all of that yet. I've only gotten most of the way through the books once. Yeah, that washed over <laughs> me as well, don't worry. Um, so, yeah, so we get sort of all of this intercut um, to say uh, smiling at Yennefer, Yennefer smiling to herself, um, Siri sort of making this connection with Dara, even though he's an elf after everything we found out about human-elf relations in this episode. Frankly, I think Siri is actually still too young to have a properly socialized self-hatred. Yes, I think that's the case. Especially because Calanthe seems to have raised her on a kind of no politics until it's too late. Yes. Yes. 
which I'm not sure worked out for the best in the end. I'm not gonna lie, but like. <laughs> but you do, Calanthe. Um, what I think is really interesting is um, I say that line too much. Um, when um, you know, we've got this sort of debate between Yaskier and Geralt about the accuracy of toss a coin to your Witcher, and I think that calls back to East's line from the first episode that pretty ballads hide bastard truths, and we've got sort of oh yeah. Another you're right. Here. You're absolutely right there. Uh, uh, it's an interesting line because we know that that chronologically happens many years after this ballad. Yes. So. Um, oh, that's true. That's right. That is many, many years after this. The pretty ballad hides <laughs> Geralt exciting <laughs> and funding the Scottish And, you know, conversely, I think there's probably been, as I say, hate crimes committed to Yaskir's song. Oh, I'm sure there have. <laughs> yeah, but then we see the slugs, the Ely slug boys being thrown into the Poor pool and there boys. being clearly <laughs> several hundred, <laughs> lots and lots of, well, I yes. shouldn't say slug boys, they're slug girls, um, hunters of them. So clearly one, the school's existed a long time and two, to say has been doing it a long time and that's... Look practice of using humans as magical batteries, mm. I see. And you also see the school glowy yes. a bit after she tosses them. Absorbing their essence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so we're just about at the end here. So what the thing that I love about this whole scene where it's intercut between all of these different events while uh, Yaskir is singing Toss a Coin to Your Witchers, there's this long shot of Geralt sitting on his horse, sort of sitting on Roach, looking out at the scenery and looking pensive and looking sad like he does so well. And then he's just, just before it cuts away from him, he just has this like tiny smile before he follows Yaskir. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like he just sort of laughs at the entire situation yeah, this under his nose. Yeah, tiny, genuine smile, um, which considering how he's been for the whole episode, where he's basically at the point of just not giving a shit if the elves killed him. Um, I think it's just like having this irrepressible puppy dog follow him around and like still want to be his friend after seeing like what his life's like and it's just really, I think, helped process some of his things about relating to people. Aye. It's nice that, I think it's interesting that came out in parallel with The Mandalorian because there are obvious (laughs) parallels there, you know, a character being bundled up with this young mischievous burden that they're having to deal with. Yeah, that is exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> That's fantastic. That that is actually what I needed to hear. Because <laughs> you know he helps him out sometimes, and he's a very endearing little creature the, that they are the hangs selling about point of both big... both series. Yes. So. <laughs> exactly so. Yaskir is baby Yoda. Yeah, yeah, I can see. <laughs> like there is there is something like um, there is something like almost like. Not exactly parental, but like, you know, I'd say like older brotherly yeah. in like Geralt's relationship with Yaskir. Yeah, it absolutely is. Like, like mm. he's like, you know, Yaskir provides him essential moral support while Geralt basically saves him from every trouble that he runs into. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, there's just one more thing I wanted to say about Toss a Coin to Your Witcher, which is in the context of this entire episode, uh, a significant amount of which has been about human, non-human relations um, in terms of, um, at this point in what we know about the history, humans being just awful to non-humans. The line, uh, a friend of humanity, takes on a real dark meaning. Mm. 
It kind of does, especially yes, in the context of he, you know, he put every elf far back on the shelf. Um, because, because, like that's it. I do fucking love that line <laughs> because it's such a brilliant breaking of the fourth wall. Yes. It's fantastic. Yes. I like cracked up laughing when I heard it. But like, also, um, yeah, yeah, um, and I think. I think it's like it's it's reflective of that thing uh, Istrid mentions about humans like liking to see the, themselves as the good guys in mm-hmm. history. A friend of humanity sounds instinctively positive to anyone who's listening to the song without knowing the context. Yes, obviously. Yes, like um, oh but, shit, yeah, um, yeah, like like when you put it in the context of not human on human relations, it sort of hits you that. Especially because this context is uh, this, a song lying about Geralt fighting and yeah, beating yeah, elves. Yeah, <laughs> beating up some elves. Yeah, it, it it is worth saying that it's like not as bad as it could be because it's like not it's it's not it's not depicting Geralt as like a hero in some sort of like you know <laughs> instant relating to, relating to the great cleansing, um, which would be mm. the really really dodgy way of doing this. Uh, yeah it it does tell that he got kidnapped and beat them up and escaped it It doesn't say that he was on a crusade slaying them very specific fictional tale do we have any sort of final reflections on the episode in total i'm kind of actually you guys like it's kind of weird i'm actually sort of like feeling nostalgic right now but the first witcher game i kind of feel like replaying it like i know that like when i start i'm gonna be like Oh my god, I can't. What is this? Oh, well, you're like... stuck on the farm with the wolves for <laughs> about three really, hours. I really, honestly, I'm thinking about waiting until this gets released to see if we actually get any listeners. Because if we do, I might set up a Twitch stream and play it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think there's actually something worth considering in like Twitch streaming the games. Yeah. If this gets any, any listeners. Well, um, next episode, um, if our pl- if our plans go as planned, mm-hmm. we'll have a special guest. That should be that should be good fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, to, yeah, to introduce I saw the other day. to our listeners a little bit what we're gonna talk about, we we decided to uh, get our friend Fiona Robertson, who's um, a notable political activist and especially disability rights activist here in Scotland, uh, in to talk about um, shall we say some of the more dodgy things in episode three, yes. uh, which I'm mm-hmm. not gonna list in order to not spoil to anyone, mm-hmm. but um, that should be good fun. Okay, and with that, I think we'll just wrap up here. We look forward to you joining us again next time when we discuss Season 1, Episode 3, Betrayer Moon, with our special guest, Fiona Robertson. Our music is Medieval Abstraction by Lucas Perny and Miloslav Kolar, and you can find us on both Twitter and Tumblr as at The Witcher Cast. See you next time. <laughs>